0: Fifty-two of the highest mountains in the country are in Colorado. And though Pike's Peak is not quite the highest of all, by a few feet only, it is surely the most famous of all America's sky-brushing mountains. It rises 14,110 feet above sea level, a mile and a half above the plain at its foot. And when Lieutenant Zebulon Pike first discovered it, 150 years ago, and failed in his attempts to climb it, He wrote in his diary that the forbidding mountain would never be climbed by mortal man. What a difference today. Each year, more than a quarter of a million tourists climb the mountain, either driving over the marvelously engineered automobile highway to the top, or on the cog railway. And as our train climbs steadily up and up toward the distant clouds, a changing panorama of awe-inspiring beauty past our window.
1: If Colorado Springs is a stage, Pike's Peak is, without question, its central character. The Ute Indians called it Tava, the Mountain of the Sun. Zebulon Pike, a lieutenant in the U.S. Army, and perhaps the first white American to lay eyes upon it, called it Grand Peak. It was later renamed for Pike himself. In the 200 years since Pike's 1806 Western Expedition, the mountain has earned many nicknames, perhaps most famously, America's Mountain. Catherine Lee Bates wrote the song "America the Beautiful" after taking in the scenery from the
2: top. And like many things American, the mountain is also a picture of consumer convenience. You won't find another 14,000-foot mountain anywhere in the world more accessible than Pikes Peak, and you surely won't find another one with a donut shop on top.
1: In nice weather, you can drive a car to the top on a paved highway, and there's a car race to the summit every summer. There's a cog train that scales the southeast slope and drops you off right in front of the world-famous donut shop, and you can make the round trip from base to summit and back in an afternoon without breaking a sweat, and with souvenirs to show for it.
2: Yet for all its conveniences, Pikes Peak is still a vast and imposing wilderness area. Craggy and seldom without snow, the bald eastern face between Timberline and the summit is a forbidding sight even in midsummer, And at more than 14,000 feet, the weather's known to turn in an instant. According to Gail Hum, longtime El Paso County search and rescue volunteer and army surgeon, the mountain's tourist infrastructure can be misleading.
3: The average person, I think they, they think, ah, oh, there's a road going to the top. You know, they go up there and they see people hanging around in just, you know, tennis shoes and shorts and everything up on the top. So that takes some of the wilderness aspect away from it. I think one of the problems with Pikes Peak is that it's so accessible You can drive up, take the train up, and decide to hike down. That doesn't take a lot of effort to do that, and then you can really get into trouble.
2: But it isn't just tourists who underestimate Pike's Peak.
4: I'm afraid we were a little too familiar with it. And with the peak, the peak was like our backyard.
1: This is Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadows of America's mountain. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. On this episode, we bring you a story born out of the paradox of Pikes Peak, the 14er with a donut shop on top. A story of what can happen when even the most experienced mountaineers get too comfortable on familiar turf.
2: The story begins in the spring of 1995. At the time, Colorado Springs was home to a close-knit, scrappy crew of die-hard climbers, mountaineers, and backcountry
5: skiers. It was a tighter community, I think, because um, not that many people were doing it right? We're going climbing. It was an oddball thing. It wasn't, there weren't climbing gyms.
1: This is Brian Becker. He's a Colorado Springs native and a
5: longtime mountaineer. You'd meet people and learn from them, right? Like you'd apprentice by just going out and climbing with folks and traveling around even throughout the country. Like I spent time in New Hampshire uh, a few winters in the late 70s, time in the Alps, then New Hampshire, then back here as a (laughs) climbing bum, basically.
2: A rotating cast of a couple dozen locals would form ad hoc groups for outings. Depending on who was available on any given day, they'd explore the mountains in whatever manner best suited the season. Dan Crossy was another regular in the scene.
4: My crowd, my climbing friends, um, what we did was climb all summer, and in the winter we'd ski, you know, the ski areas mostly, but a little backcountry. But then in the spring, when the snow got safe supposedly, (laughs) that's when we'd start ski mountaineering. And it was almost like every weekend, it it was sort of like some people watch football games. You know, you don't ask what you're doing on the weekend. Everybody is, you know, is skiing a peak somewhere for as long as the snow holds out, like four or five weeks in a row. And it was a a big deal. And we used to ski the peak quite a bit because that was our go-to mountain when you didn't want to drive somewhere. The peak was the affectionate name among locals for Pikes Peak, the
6: backyard playground of the mountain bums. The whole north side of the peak is really fantastic uh, rock climbing. There's a little bit on the south side of the summit, but uh, there's little there's sections of it like Pyrical rock that are just like Yosemite, beautiful, big, sweeping cracks, and just great great things to do up there. This is Mike Houston,
2: a native of Colorado Springs who grew up exploring the mountains' nooks and crannies.
6: Everybody loves Pikes Peak. It's been the big playground here, and it's it's really a Nice local opportunity. Despite
1: the fact that Colorado Springs literally butts into the base of this 14,115-foot mountain, it's rarely thought of as a quote-unquote mountain town, like Boulder, Aspen,
2: or Telluride. The touristy aspects of Pikes Peak can give the impression that the mountain is somehow tame or boring. But for the local mountaineers, that couldn't have been further from the truth. For them, it was a secret hidden in plain sight, protected from overuse in many ways by
5: its touristy reputation. We didn't publicize things a lot that we did, right? We kind of kept it to ourselves, stuff on Pike's Peak, and I, I, I don't know. We just uh, wanted to keep it a little quieter and enjoy the solitude. Ironically,
2: the tourist traps also allowed for the quickest access to that solitude. Each spring, for example, the cog railway and highway became like ski lifts, transporting locals up to beautiful backcountry terrain. Nate Porter was another member of the group of mountaineers in Colorado Springs.
7: Just the fact that in the springtime, when that road opens up to the summit, that you can drive up to 14,000 feet and instantly be on uh, incredible skiing or climbing terrain. is very unique. And I think sort of that whole factor is what keeps a lot of sort of mountain folks in the Springs area happy. And, you know, I guess if Pikes Peak wasn't there, um, Colorado Springs wouldn't be as attractive as a town to live in for a lot of folks because they wouldn't. They wouldn't have that Alpine fix and that that access to that type of terrain so readily accessible. So it is a very unique situation.
1: On April 25th, 1995, four skiers set out for a day on Pike's Peak. There was Dan Crossy. Okay, I'm Dan Crossy, uh, carpenter, cabinet maker at Colorado College. Dan was a soft-spoken 43-year-old at the time. He dropped out of college to do carpentry and spend time outdoors. As a young man, he'd lost several toes to frostbite on an ill-fated mountain climbing expedition. There was Mike
6: Houston. My name's uh, Mike Houston. Um, Was born and raised in Colorado Springs and went away for quite a long time and came back. Mike was a tall, lean woodworker who'd restored a sailboat and sailed around the world. He frequently
2: traveled to Central America to deliver clothes to a Catholic charity, and was always up for an adventure if it meant being in the mountains.
1: There was Nate Porter.
2: Sure, uh, my name's Nate Porter.
1: He worked at the Mountain Chalet, a local mountaineering shop that served as a hub for the outdoors
2: community for many years. And there was Bill Blair, the frequent instigator of these ad hoc outings, and the life of the party, Blair was a stout Irishman, the owner of his own painting company, a husband, and the father of five.
1: According to Nate Porter, the 25th of April began like most other spring ski days would.
7: Well, probably the beginning of that day unfolded partly the day and night before, because, as I recall, there had been a lot of recent snow, so we were all very excited about that. Really, it just came down to making phone calls, who's off work, who can get away, that sort of thing. And, you know, enthusiasm was running high. We were we were going to go have a great ski day. Here's
1: Mike Houston.
6: We were kind of uh, all trying to get away from work. I remember when we met at Danny's house, the birds were singing. It was an April morning down here, and the birds were singing. The trees were budding out, you know.
4: And But up on the peak, it was still winter. We were really just out for a day trip, you know, just some munchies, some food, um, and, and a little bit of extra gear, but not that much because it was springtime. It was April 25th, you know. Down here, you know, people are walking around in shorts, and, and you know better. You know that the mountain, 14,000 feet, is different. But I remember almost not taking my heavy parka. I was thinking, ah, oh, do I need this big, heavy parka? And I damn near left it at home. As Dan
2: Crossy recalls, the plan was to take the COG Railway, the tourist train that runs from the base of Pikes Peak to the summit during the summer. They'd ride until it stopped at a spot called Windy Point, just above Treeline, where the snow forced the COG to turn around. Then, with their skis in their packs, they'd hike the rest of the way to the summit along the COG tracks.
4: Back then, they used to kind of know us because we used to be up there so often. They were really nice to us. um, If the COG is full, you have to pay full price. And if the COG isn't full, you can buy a one-way ticket and they would tell us to wait till the very end uh, and and if it didn't fill up they'd just give us a seat for half price cuz they knew we weren't coming back down with them or they'd let us sit in little auxiliary seats it was kind of cool um and that's what we did this time
7: it might have been my first time riding the cog up um but I do remember you know getting on the train and there's always the novelty of, of being skiers with ski gear on the train with a bunch of tourists and you know lots of questions and interest and curiosity from from the fellow train passengers.
1: The group was excited, if not a bit nervous. Nothing unusual for those kinds of trips, says Porter.
7: Any time you're climbing and skiing in the mountains like that, you you definitely have a little bit of nervous tension in the back of your head, but along with that, I think, I I would say the enthusiasm outweighed the nerves by a long shot. You know, it was going to be one of the better ski days we had ever had up there.
2: Once they got off the cog at Windy Point, it was clear how much snow had fallen.
6: The train just uh, stops at a big bank of snow. Mike Houston. You know, they stop for a minute or two and then they turn around and descend, but if they have hikers in there, they let them out, and that's what we did. And The tourists were like, wow, you know, these guys are crazy.
1: Beyond Windy Point, Mike, Dan, Nate, and Bill found the windblown train tracks and began following them up to the summit.
6: They were clear enough and crusty. You know, there was crust, and we didn't have to put on our skis or anything like that. We had our skis on our packs, and we just kind of hunkered down, and the wind was coming right down the mountain into our faces. Nate Porter.
7: As I remember, the weather did start to turn. I I don't remember if it started immediately upon getting off the cog or if it had started getting bad even on the train ride up. But certainly by the time we were well into our hike up from the Cog Railway drop-off, the weather was turning and it was getting really windy, starting to cloud up, really blowing hard. That's my overwhelming memory of the hike up was, uh, gee, the weather's really getting bad here.
6: Mike Houston. It was dead of winter. It was blowing hard and everybody was uh, hunkered down for that last two or three miles up the Cog. And, uh, Bill, the last mile up, Bill stayed right behind me because he said I made a good wind break. He had meant to stop and put on another layer, but when we got to the top, everybody was pretty cold. You know, if you stop moving in the Rockies, you can feel the devil bite your ass, you know.
2: Except for a few rare days in summer, the summit of Pikes Peak is almost always windblown and cold. But the gusts over the past few days had been unusually strong. Here's Dan Crossy.
4: What we had intended to ski was the North Face, which is not so mellow. It's steeper, and it's a little chute. It's a really beautiful granite chute. It's got these beautiful yellow lichen-colored granite walls that go up beside you. It kind of reminds me of being in Valhalla for some reason. It's it's a beautiful thing. It's called the cog couloir. But when we got to the top unfortunately we went over to look down it and the top 6 or 700 feet of snow had all blown off it at all the, the wind had been scouring it from the north which is very unusual and we weren't going to carry our skis down 6 or 700 feet and ski the half of it so we just decided well we'll ski the east face which is mellower the
1: east face of pikes peak is the postcard face it's the side that can be seen from colorado springs broad bald and rocky it also gets full sun for most of the day even
6: in winter On that day, the amount of snow on the east face was unusual. The east face looked the same as it usually does, but it was probably, you know, at the top, it was probably 10 feet deeper than normal. You know, it was really packed. It was what they call wind-loaded. If you've ever spent any time in the backcountry in winter, you probably
2: know that a wind-loaded face can be a bad thing.
1: Jamie Musnicki, the executive director of the American Avalanche Association in Victor, Idaho, explains.
5: A slope can become
7: loaded with snow approximately 10 times faster by wind loading than by snow falling from the sky, like just a storm event alone. So it can be a very rapid and dramatic loading process.
1: Musnicki says that avalanches most often occur on slopes between 37 and 50 degrees. But, she says, avalanches can occur on gentler slopes down to 30 degrees, especially when the face is wind loaded. Mike, Dan, Nate, and Bill didn't consider the east face of Pikes Peak's relatively mild slope much of a risk as far as avalanches go, but they also didn't realize
2: how wind-loaded it really was. Typically, by late April, avalanche danger is relatively low everywhere in the Rockies, so much so that the avalanche hotline normally shuts down by this time of year. All this, combined with the fact that they were freezing cold and eager to get off the summit, led them to take what they believed would be an almost insignificant risk.
7: I just remember personally being really cold and kind of just wanting to get off the summit post-haste. Let's get the heck out of here and get down to where it's a little calmer and nicer and then we can regroup and figure out what we're doing and maybe take a break or whatever.
6: You know, the wind chill is so extreme up there that you stop moving and you start getting cold pretty quick. So by the time... Danny and Nate came back from the, looking at the north face. You know, Bill was dressed up, and we were all kind of needed to move. They put their skis on and took off. Nate went down first, and the first thing I saw was that it was really hard-packed. And I was going, well, it's, it's cooked down, it's, it's settled down, it's icy, you know, because Nate, his first turn, I think he went right down on his butt, and he recovered but you could tell that it was, you know, as hard as a ice rink up near the top. And I was going, well, that's, you know, that's a, a sign that it's safe. Now, what I didn't think about is the rotor on the top of the, the peak comes from, most of the winds come from the north and the west, and they, they blow over the top and down the east face. And so that first 200 feet is kind of... The rotor curls over the top and the wind deposits the snow and then it kind of beats the snow down and packs it but below that it was all pretty soft and it had weak layers in it.
7: It didn't feel like uh, it didn't feel dangerous at the time although certainly looking back on things and it might have registered differently had we stopped to think about it but certainly looking back I feel like we ignored some red flags.
1: The first few hundred feet were fine Icy and difficult, but not worrisome, they intended to regroup at a spot called Blob Rock, a cliff that juts out just a little ways down the face. Nate arrived first and took off his skis, then Dan, then Mike
6: Bill was the last guy to ski down, and he tripped on the you know his skis pushed in he tripped and he he slid the last twenty or thirty feet on it, head first on his stomach with style you know and big smile on his face. He had a bunch of beer cans in the belly of his uh Parka, he he always would have a few beers in his parka pockets, so he always looked his pot belly looked a little bigger than normal, you know, when he was skiing. On a nicer day, they might have cracked a beer. Bill, who often
2: carried an early model cell phone with him for his business, might have made a call to a friend who couldn't join them to gloat. But they decided to keep moving, and after a few minutes, they headed out from Blob Rock into the narrowing gully below. Dan Crossy led the pack.
4: Everything was going well so far until we took off. And, and I skied off first. And and it's whenever you slice that face, you know, there's a certain tension in a snow face. And if things aren't good when you slice it, that helps make it break. And I skied out across it and nothing happened yet. And I got under a, a little rock outcropping. I skied below a rock outcropping and turned around. And I think I was thinking of taking out my camera to photograph the guys coming down behind me. And that was kind of when all hell broke loose. Bill followed Dan, and then Mike went.
1: Nate was still on Blob Rock with his skis off. Here's Mike.
6: I followed their track out into the middle of the gully, and right when I was about to make a left turn down the fall line, I heard this, you, heard, you could hear the whole slope just kind of go, Womp Womp.
2: It's a sound that backcountry skiers are trained to fear. It's the sound of a snowfield breaking loose, the sound right before an avalanche.
6: It's interesting how many people uh, have the same reaction when that happens. My first thought was like, oops, you know. Oops, big oops, and the whole, after that settling, you know, the, the whole mountain just deteriorated, and the whole slope deteriorated into big slabs and started scooting quick.
4: When the snow face cracks, it cracks almost like a pane of glass. It's not just like one crack. It cracks and it starts to shatter going uphill. I think that's what happened because the, the, the snow went all the way up to the cornice, which was several hundred feet above us by then. It
7: was um, a matter of seconds. I heard the crack and I looked up the slope and I saw large blocks of snow moving towards me. And my first thought was, um, well, okay, you're standing on, on shallow ground here. You're at least not standing on a thick slope of snow. My initial thought was I could sort of shoulder and block my way through that a little bit. Um, but instantly I was just peeled off a blob rock and hurled through the air.
4: I really, it, it was like a roar. It was kind of like, almost like being on a freeway, that roar of the trucks, you know, a lot of, a big, loud roar. It's like, being caught on the freeway with a tractor trailer coming down on you and you're on a tricycle you know your your chances of outrunning that thing are absolutely silch your first thought is
6: i'm going to try to ski out of this and get to the side you know but what happens is the slabs knock you down immediately because it's a lot of weight that starts to go really fast
4: it's accelerating we're in the worst possible spot you know i thought i was protected under this cliff but I looked up and I saw the snow coming over the cliff and kind of hit me in the back and I sort of hunched up and it starts tumbling you and it really is it's like being in a cement mixer you don't know what ends up. You get knocked down and then
6: I was sitting down feet first going down just like you go down a child's a slide right I think I got a ski pole or two maybe both of my poles off and by the time I did that I thought of my, I was going to try for my skis but I by that time, I was, I'd was i hit something and I was tumbling inside the snow like a rag doll in a washing machine.
7: I was airborne, I believe, for basically the duration of the moving snow. Um, I was flying through the air, and, and to me, everything went into slow motion, silence mode. I was almost sort of outside of myself, watching myself bounce down the slope.
6: The centrifugal force pulls your limbs straight out. And you're like cartwheeling out of control, you know, and, and then I was like, Well, this is it, I'm gonna die. This is I thought there was so much volume and it was so much power, I thought, there's no way we're not gonna be completely buried. And that's pretty calm, you know, you, when you don't have much choice, it's a pretty calm feeling, you know, you you don't have any time to think about it, you don't have any choice. So I was
4: just like, Well, this is it. It ripped both my skis off. It ripped buckles off my ski boots. I think it bent one of my legs around my back. Um, you kind of see flashes of light and long, long tumble. And then I remember it started slowing down, so I started thinking, God, maybe I'll survive this.
7: I hit once, uh, I think on my, my butt, basically, my glute. Um, I bounced once on my glute, and then... Uh, came to a rest on my knees, basically, at the the bottom of Blob Rock.
6: I didn't really feel any really tough impacts, but I knew I was tumbling and I knew I was going to die. And went like that for however many seconds, and I was, like, riding it out, and then everything started to slow down. So I started to swim again with my arms, and everything slowed down, and I stopped sitting... Facing downhill just like I started on top of about two feet of snow.
4: When I got kind of got up and caught my breath and I looked up the hill and I could see something dark, I think it was Mike's red parka, but it, it didn't really make sense. You know, I didn't. Quite, I thought it was Mike, but I wasn't sure. He was 100 yards or more ahead of me. And it's because his, his femur was broken, his right femur was broken, and his leg was folded up in his face, and he had a broken ski attached to his ski boot. And, you know, it was just like this jumble of stuff.
6: My ski boot, my right ski boot, was sitting right in the middle of my forehead. And my leg, my right leg was hinged right in the middle of the femur, so it was pretty easy diagnosis my ski was going across ways in the air you know and i was i was sitting there in the snow with my leg my right leg was up in my face you know and my foot my ski boot was in my face you know and uh danny was about 70 feet down below me and he was standing up and brushing himself off and i said uh, are you okay danny And he said i think so he was pretty dazed you know and he, he said what about you and i said i think i I definitely got a broken
4: leg easy you know, he looked up there and he said oh yeah you do <laughs> I had a broken hip but I wasn't um all cut up or anything too badly a couple had one bad cut on my leg but nothing too horrible considering what can happen I couldn't really walk because with the broken hip it wasn't super painful but the leg just not really wouldn't work so I think I crawled or stumbled or something. And I got to Mike and he was still alive, but it was, you know, and he he laid his own leg back down and he snapped his femur right in half.
1: Though Nate had fallen from what they estimated to be an 80-foot cliff and landed on his knees, he was the least injured of the group. The snow had cushioned his landing. He gathered up what gear of his he could find around him and started making his way down the avalanche field. Eventually, he met up with Dan and Mike.
7: Well, I think we were all in shock and um, trying to process what had happened. Um, I don't remember much specifically about their state of mind other than just we were all really, really shocked and really uh, uh, anxious about Bill because we we knew the three of us were okay, but we still didn't know where our fourth buddy was. And and, um, we just realized we were in a really bad predicament at that point.
2: It was mid-afternoon. There was still no sign of Bill. And they knew they needed a rescue.
7: With two guys basically not mobile, and myself being the only mobile one, we decided that I would go for help because it was getting late in the day, and we decided we needed to use whatever remaining daylight we had to initiate a rescue. And uh, so I I left the other two guys um, with whatever gear and clothing I could, and Uh, took what I had with me and and started skiing down the slope Um, the goal being to reach bar camp and initiate a rescue
1: All Dan and Mike could do was wait in the avalanche field above Timberline with a clear view of
6: Colorado Springs far below I was sitting there looking at my hometown and you could see the sun down in the city and the cars going along the sun reflecting on the windshields and stuff and you're just going like wow, they're just all hanging out down there, safe, you know, and we're screwed.
1: This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back.
2: Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pike's Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net. Welcome back to Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadows of America's Mountain. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. On this episode, we're telling the story of a rare avalanche on Pike's Peak that nearly buried four experienced skiers on April 25th, 1995. When we left off, Nate Porter, the youngest in the group, had just left his skiing buddies, Dan Crossy and Mike Houston, to go for help. Dan had broken his hip in the avalanche, and Mike broke his femur. Their fourth partner, Bill Blair was nowhere to be found.
1: Nate began to ski down toward Bar Camp, a campsite and cabin halfway down Pikes Peak. It's staffed year-round, and he knew he could radio for help once he got there.
7: So once I left those guys, um, I think I found a glove or something in the snow, and not long after that I was still descending the debris field, and, and then I found Bill. Um, he he was not completely buried in the snow, but he was he was basically buried let's say his, his front half was showing. His, he was um head first downhill, um obviously very traumatized. Um, and so I, when I found him I yelled back up to Dan and Mike that I had found Bill.
2: Despite his broken hip, Dan managed to crawl down the slope to Nate and Bill. Bill was in bad shape.
4: He was sort of semi-conscious, a little bit delirious. Um, couldn't really talk to him, but he was sort of thrashing and mumbling and saying stuff. And um, I remember I went to, to lift his head up and, and all the, the snow behind his head was all red from a, a, a head wound. And, um, but uh, when we saw the red blood, I remember I just looked at Nate and he looked at me and we knew right then, you know, somebody's got to get out of here. And, and tried to get a helicopter or something. Nate left Dan with Bill and headed for bar camp. Very soon after Nate left, Bill died. He um, started getting thrashing a little bit more and um, stopped breathing. But um, uh, in some ways, it was kind of a merciful death because he got to die right there. And I'm glad I was with him. He's a very dear friend.
6: There was nothing more Dan could do for Bill, so he slowly made his way back to Mike. I couldn't see them from where I was. I was sitting down and there was a rise, so when he came up the rise, I could tell from his body language that Bill was dead. And he got closer and he said, Bill, Bill's gone, you know, and he got up. He was pretty shook up, you know, and uh, we started talking about what happened down there, and I said, uh, did you bring his pack? and Danny said no and I said did you bring his jacket and he said no I didn't even think of that stuff you know I'd been sitting up there by myself thinking about everything that we could do to survive the night you know and Danny had everything you know Bill's death had kind of shut that part of Danny's thinking off
1: Dan didn't feel strong enough to go back down the slope to retrieve Bill's gear, so the two of them decided they'd have to make do with what they had. In one of the bitter ironies of the day, Nate, Dan, and Mike had all forgotten about the cell phone that Bill carried, the one he often used to call his friends in town while he was up on the mountain.
6: We could have initiated the the rescue hours earlier if one of us would have remembered that his cell phone was in his parka or in his pack and we could
4: have called town right away. Now everybody carries cell phones. It's the first thing you think about. Back then, hardly anyone did.
2: Mike and Dan had no choice but to settle in, possibly for the night. They were exposed on the mountain well above Timberline. Dan carved out a little ledge in the snow for them to lie on. It wasn't much, but it kept him from sliding down the slope. We
6: were like, going, this isn't going to be too comfortable. <laughs> Mike and Dan's
1: fate was out of their hands now. All they could do was wait and hope that Nate made it down to Bar Camp
7: before it got dark. There hadn't been any traffic from from the east face down to Bar Camp, so I was pretty much navigating by by memory and by by feel. Um, and I knew I I knew basically where it was. I'd, I'd done it several times before, but it was it was pretty unnerving not having a a clear path to follow and knowing that time was of the essence.
2: Nate worked his way down slowly, careful not to take any wrong turns that might set him off course. His injuries, though minor compared to the rest of the group, were beginning to bother him.
7: I was starting to realize how injured I was uh, at this point. You know, the the initial shock and adrenaline was starting to wear off, and I realized that my knees were pretty banged up. And it's really starting to push dark at this point. Um, So I'm really stressing out as far as uh, being able to find bar camp before dark. I was scared to death because my two buddies were still up there on the mountain. The weather was was deteriorating rapidly. Even from below tree line, I could tell that, and you know, I was getting cold and um, starting to wonder if I was in the right spot or not. Or, so I was really, um, really anxious about that.
1: Then, as he feared, Nate realized he was lost. He'd overshot Bar Camp.
7: I descended too low, basically.
2: back in the avalanche field, the gravity of Mike and Dan's situation had set in. They felt the weight of the day's mistakes, but tried to stay focused on the increasingly likely prospect of a long night on Pike's Peak.
6: So, you know, you're sitting there aftermath, and you got a dead friend 250 feet down the hill from you, and you're going, you know, mostly regret, mostly hindsight, and but you you don't overthink it either once you get in a situation like that there's no point in say shoulda shoulda coulda woulda all of that stuff you know you just got to deal with what what's there you know and plan try to try to live you know so I don't know if Danny recalls much about what we were talking about but it's mostly regret and hindsight and then how how we're going to get through the night you know how we're going to
4: do this you got to get set early, you got to be determined that we're going to deal with this, you know, and try to let all the should-haves, would-have, could-haves, you know, get them out of your mind and just what about right now, that's a good way to survive. Dan
1: made a makeshift splint for Mike's leg with a broken ski and used the remaining daylight to get himself and
4: Mike into all available layers, which wasn't much. I had a volleyball game that night, and I remember when I I left one of my my good friends, Mark Mahler, a local contractor, I said, I'll see you at the volleyball game tonight unless I get caught in an avalanche or something, you know, ha ha.
2: Though Nate had missed bar camp on his way down, eventually he ran into a trail he recognized.
7: Luckily, I, I descended to a point where I hit the bar trail with some foot traffic um, in the snow. So once I, once I hit that, I knew where I was, and I was I was bummed that I was lower than I wanted to be because it meant I had to go back uphill, which was gonna be pimple and time-consuming. But at least at that point, I knew where I was.
1: He made his way back up the hill to Bar Camp. When he arrived, the camp's caretakers, Russell and Lisa, were there.
7: It was a relief to see those guys, for sure, and they, they went left right into action and, um, got in touch with whomever they got in touch with down in town, pr- presumably search and rescue. Um, and they started taking care of me, which was awesome, because I was really cold and tired at that point, and I was really starting to uh, uh, seize up with, uh, with the injuries that I had. And um, I, was, I was just really relieved to be there at that point.
2: Finally, just before dark, the rescue was about to begin. This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back. Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net.
1: From KRCC in Colorado Springs, this is "Wish We Were Here: Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain." I'm Noel Black,
2: and I'm Jake Brownell.
1: On this episode, we're telling the story of an avalanche on Pikes Peak that struck a group of experienced skiers in late April of 1995. Nate Porter, Mike Houston, Bill Blair, and Dan Crossy were out for a day trip on the peak's east face when the avalanche hit. Bill Blair was killed. Mike Houston and Dan Crossy were seriously injured. But Nate Porter, the youngest in the group, was able to ski down and call for help.
8: Received a page, uh, if you want to kind of start at the beginning.
2: This is Keith Conquest. At the time of the accident, he was the on-duty coordinator for El Paso County Search and Rescue.
8: My significant other and I were at dinner. It was a beautiful April day in the 60s, as I remember that day. Uh, Page from the sheriff's office for an avalanche on Pikes Peak. And that in itself was a very surprising page because I had never heard of an avalanche on Pikes Peak.
1: Like everyone else involved with search and rescue in El Paso County, Keith was a highly trained volunteer. As a coordinator, he took calls from the sheriff. Then it was his job to get to the rescue base in Colorado Springs, assemble the rescue team, and oversee the operation.
2: Keith told the sheriff to send out a page to the rest of the search and rescue team and then made his way to the base.
8: So we got started getting people organized, uh, checked the weather, and the first big strike against us was this big blizzard that was moving in.
1: It was around this time that Gail Hum, an Army doctor and search and rescue volunteer,
3: got the page. I uh, had been uh, up in Larkspur uh, riding a horse, my horse that I boarded up there. And so I was on my way home thinking eagerly what, what I was going to fix for dinner because I really hadn't eaten much that day. And uh, it was about, I think, 5 p.m. when the first page came out and it said, Report immediately to Rescue Base.
2: Gail had had a long day and figured she'd help the coordinator down at the base. But when she arrived, it was clear that search and rescue had other plans.
3: I pulled in there and someone came running out and said, I, There's an avalanche on Pikes Peak. Are you ready to go? And I said, well, I'd have to take my dogs home and and pick up some gear. And they said, "Okay, do it now, quick. And they said they had a Flight for Life helicopter coming back that had taken uh, one team member up and dropped off some gear. And he was going to come back and could pick up two more people and take them up. And they said, "Uh, and you'll, you'll have to go light.
1: While Gail and another teammate, Jeff Newton, got ready, The team leader was already on his way to the summit in a lightweight Flight for Life helicopter. His name was Ski Hipski. Ski has been with Search and Rescue for 43 years and still runs missions. Now 61, he's compact and athletic looking with a silver mustache and bright
9: eyes. So I went up first with the helicopter just to make sure uh, they weren't sure what the uh, weather conditions are going to be like. Less weight, it's easier for them to make those determinations.
2: Dan and Mike saw the helicopter on its way up to the summit.
6: They figured it wouldn't be long before they were rescued. When darkness started coming on, we heard a, we heard a helicopter. You know, so we had our headlamps on, and I was waving a shovel, a uh, aluminum snow shovel in the in the air, and they they came right up the slope and saw us, and they kind of went right by
4: us. I remember taking the headlamp and flashing it at them, and they kind of indicated that they. Um, could see where we were. Um, And so that was a relief to know that the helicopter was there. Here's Ski Hipski again.
9: I got dropped off on top. Helicopter left, went back to rescue base to pick up the other two. I started down uh, the uh, face just below the top uh, maybe 100 feet or so. There was a huge fracture line about 6 feet high about 150 feet long. Pretty obvious where an avalanche had occurred. So I tried to stay to the side of that Coming down the rocks, uh, even though the avalanche had slid there 's still potential for something else to come down, so I was trying to come down in as safe an area as possible. I managed to tweak my knee a little bit, uh, my left knee, so going was a little bit slow. Ski slowly made his way down from the summit to the spot where Mike and Dan were stranded, so uh, got to the uh, the first person. Uh, and he said that he just felt like he had been beat up with a baseball bat. You know, he just wasn't able to move. And uh, the next one uh, was laying on the ground next to him, uh, took a quick look at him, uh, possible pelvic and femur fractures on him, and then uh, uh, went down a little bit further and found the, uh, the other individual that uh, unfortunately was not as lucky as the others.
1: Not long after Ski reached Dan and Mike, Dr. Gail Hum and Jeff Newton got dropped off by the Flight for Life helicopter at the summit. They followed Ski's tracks down the east face. Search and Rescue Coordinator Keith Conquest had also dispatched another group of rescuers to drive up the Pikes Peak
2: Highway with the gear they'd need to get everyone out safely. It's important to note that Gail, Jeff, and Ski were the first responders. Their job was to locate Dan and Mike, assess the situation, and stabilize them for rescue. They didn't have medical equipment, medicine, or much gear beyond a couple of extra sleeping bags. Nevertheless, everyone at that point felt confident that the rescue would go according to plan.
3: I remember it was a beautiful evening. We kind of, you know, hunkered down and uh, we could see the lights of the city and we were just sitting out chatting and thinking that the team was coming up uh, up the road, up the highway, and would be coming from the top down to uh, meet us.
1: But not long after Gail and Jeff arrived,
6: things took a turn for the worse. The minute they got down to us, the, the storm arrived. You know, it was was incredible timing. It was like, oh, all right, these guys are here. We're going to be more comfortable. We're going to be warmer. And then the hammer came down with that wind. The wind came and the snow came. And I think it snowed about a foot that night and blew 60 miles an hour. And it was probably 10 degrees or something like that. So it was a pretty nasty night. Meanwhile,
2: things for the rescue team on the Pikes Peak Highway had already started to go wrong. Here's rescue coordinator Keith Conquest again.
8: People did start up the road. uh, However, on the way up, the vehicle that was hauling the snowcat blew the engine, so the snowcat never arrived on top.
1: Though the team on the highway would eventually make their way to the summit around midnight, conditions were so bad when they arrived that they couldn't find the route down. Fearing that they might accidentally dislodge another avalanche in their blind attempt to find their way through the blizzard, the second team turned around. They broke into the donut shop at the Summit house and sheltered for the night.
2: Gail, Ski, Jeff, Mike, and Dan would have to stick it out.
4: I remember Ski stood there all night long, going from one foot to the other, talking on his radio. <laughs> he's he's really tough, and he had his business clothes on under his jumpsuit. My problems was just discomfort, and Michael's were more critical. and. It was kind of hard, because every time I'd get down to try to give him water, the snow would crush, and I'd bump his sore leg, and every time they tried to do anything for him, they'd bump his sore leg. It was was, was a difficult, difficult night for him, and he was pretty damn cold, you know, having to lay in this
1: little pit. Dan had lain a couple of backpacks down beneath Mike to insulate him from the snow. They determined that the break in Mike's leg wasn't a compound fracture and that he wasn't bleeding, but he was still in a lot of pain. Also, unlike everyone else, he couldn't move around to warm up.
6: Well, it was cold. It was cold. And Gail kept telling me to imagine I was laying on a beach, that the sun, you know, I was laying on a tropical beach and the sun was beating down on me. And the one thing that they did bring that really helped was a space blanket that was over my chest. And I could feel that little, keeping my core, that little pocket of warmth was kind of a big deal. All the little things that night were big deals. You know there was some talk, and you know you're just kind of trying to help the minutes pass quicker. You know.
3: I remember, and this was about you know, probably four, or five in the morning. It wasn't light yet, and I remember thinking, you know, this is this is getting dicey. I mean, there there's a serious possibility of hypothermia here, and so I thought, okay, we need something to raise everybody's spirits. So I. Got everybody singing. <laughs> and so we started singing.
9: What
3: were you singing? I don't have any idea. I could not tell you what we were singing, but it was something pretty cheery. Uh,
9: when we woke up that morning, uh, or the sun came up, we actually really wake up because never really went to sleep. The whole field above us was completely covered in with snow. You couldn't tell that an avalanche had occurred above you. And we're sitting at the bottom of this. And there's some pucker factor now because this area avalanched already. It's fully loaded again, ready to go. Windblown snow, all those things you don't want. Uh, and we're sitting at the bottom of it. And I've got two critically injured patients. I can't move. This meant that it was going to be difficult, if not impossible, for
1: Team 2 in the Summit House to make it down to them without risking another avalanche. A new plan was hatched.
9: A decision was made to contact Fort Carson and see if we can get a a CH-47, a Chinook, to come up there to uh, do a, a, a hoist operation to get us out that way.
2: Unlike the lightweight Flight for Life helicopter that had dropped Ski, Jeff, and Gail on the summit, the Chinook was big, powerful, and capable of
9: extracting the whole group. Chinook is the Cadillac of rescue helicopters. It's a twin-rotor troop transport, tremendous power, lots of altitude capability. They use them up in Alaska for uh, rescues up there on Denali. It's got an 18,000-plus foot service ceiling. So that's certainly adequate for us here in Colorado on the peak at, you know, 14,115 feet. Fort Carson okayed the mission, but the weather was still
1: uncooperative. After the storm passed, a thick layer of clouds had settled in around the peak.
3: You know, we were, it was still very discouraging because you could hear whoop, 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 whoop hear the helicopter blades, and he knew they're close. But since they couldn't see us, they didn't know where to, where to come.
9: So we hear the helicopter come up, and as soon as he starts coming in toward the mountain, the clouds come in. You can't see the mountain anymore, so he has to leave. He turns around, hovers outside, turns around, starts to come back in because it, it lifted, and the clouds came back in. So we did that cat-and-mouse game for about two and a half hours. After several failed approaches, the chopper was running low on fuel, but the
6: pilot spotted a clearing in the
2: clouds and gave it one last try.
6: Finally, these pilots were super good, you know, and they just got in a clear pocket of air, and there were clouds below them and there were clouds above them, and they got in this little bubble of clear air down at Timberline and they just followed it. They were about 70 or 80 feet off the slope, and they just followed this bubble of clear air right up the slope. It was beautiful flying.
1: Because they were running low on fuel, there wasn't much time to evacuate. The Chinook hovered above the debris field, scattering snow and gear in every direction.
6: They're just loud as s***, sh- you know, they're like a portable storm. The Chinook dropped a litter, a kind of high-tech
2: stretcher attached to a winch, from the belly of the chopper.
1: Mike, being the most critically injured, would be the first to go up. The only problem was that Mike is a tall guy. The helicopter
4: hovered above, while all of us tried to pick up all six foot five inches of Michael and put him in a six foot basket. And it was, you know, it was bad. Michael, he, he was hurting very badly. The soldier running the
6: winch was on the radio with Ski, and he kept going, "Hurry up! Hurry up! Hurry up! Hurry up!" to Ski. So they got two straps on me and. Ski gave them the thumbs up and they, the, the second they got me off the ground that thing started like bucking and spinning around and they started winching me up I was looking straight up and spinning around and it kind of uh, tilted with my feet up in the air and I was kind of starting to slide down
2: The opening in the belly of the Chinook is only 3 feet wide which means they have to tilt the litter up on end to bring it
6: in I was kind of leaning head down and feet up and then I got to the helicopter, and they tilted me the other way, and I started sliding out the other way. So I was holding on for dear life, and these guys kind of, they got my head in there, and then my legs caught, the bottom of the litter caught on the trap door, and they, they were yanking on it and stuff, and they finally got me up in there.
1: Once Mike was inside, they dropped another device called a jungle penetrator, a kind of three-pronged anchor developed to hoist soldiers up through the forest canopy in Vietnam. Ski and
4: Dan loaded on and went up next. You know, it's this horrible situation, and yet it's kind of beautiful. It's bright out, and the clouds have gone away for a minute. And and this cable's spinning, so you like you're spinning. You're seeing first Pikes Peak, and then you're seeing Colorado Springs and all the city lights and everything. And it was kind of one of those weird things, like in the middle of all this, you know, fear and discomfort, it's actually quite beautiful.
2: Finally, the helicopter crew dropped the jungle penetrator one last time and hoisted Gail and Jeff off the mountain as they flew away. Just six minutes later, the chopper landed at Memorial Hospital in downtown Colorado Springs. Family, friends, and reporters were there to greet them.
1: But Bill Blair, the gregarious businessman and father of five who'd perished in the avalanche, was not with them. His body remained alone on the mountain, draped in a body bag, his whereabouts marked by a broken ski jutting out of the new-fallen
2: snow. Brian Becker was in Florida visiting family when he got the call. His friends had been in an avalanche on Pikes Peak. Bill Blair was
5: dead, and his body was still on the mountain. Bill and I were close. I kind of introduced Bill, I think, to skiing up and over Pikes Peak. So I guess maybe I felt a little little responsible.
1: As soon as he heard the news, Brian jumped on a plane back to Colorado.
5: My uncle got me to a plane, and I flew back crying. Right? I was in tears. I was, I was, uh, I was a mess. And, and still in disbelief.
2: Something of a legend in the Colorado Springs mountaineering scene, Brian had had his own scrapes with death. Most famously, he'd led a perilous 17-day first descent of the Diamond Route on Mount Denali in 1983. Brian and the man who'd paid him to lead the expedition had spent several days on end huddled in snow caves. They ran out of food during a series of storms and barely made it out alive. The fact that Bill had been killed on Pikes Peak, a mountain that Brian knew like the back of his hand, was
5: almost incomprehensible. It was just one of these things you just didn't think about Pikes Peak being an avalanche-prone mountain. And apparently it is.
2: Brian
1: made it back to his home in Manitou Springs at the base of Pikes Peak the night after the avalanche. It was dark and rainy, but he knew that Bill's body was still on the mountain. He couldn't stand the thought of his friend being up there alone and decided to take matters into his own hands.
5: I really fought myself on do I need to should i do this I, I I really you know started up the hill doubting whether I should go at all and it's snowy and miserable out and and uh you know uh yeah, it's the whole thing the whole death thing it's i I was still i think in some kind of a disbelief about it like bill was so bodacious that you couldn't kill him you know you can't you, you, you'd have to beat him with a sledgehammer kind of thing to quiet him down or to you know he's he was just so full of a life exuberance it's i don't know yeah he was he was he was he was quite a character brian hiked through the night
2: at around 3 a.m he reached bar camp nate who'd spent the previous night there had already made it down Brian spoke briefly with the caretaker about what had happened the night before. He left from there, charting a course from memory in the dark, working his way through the trees and the snow. Eventually, as the sun began to rise in the east, he arrived at the ski that marked Bill's body, which
5: was buried under fresh snow. It was starting to be light, right? Just 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 daybreak, watching the sunrise kind of thing. So I um I found him, you know, brushed him off and set him upright and kind of watch the sunrise together, as odd as that sounds. And uh, we always used to carry a few beers with us, so I broke out a slushy beer and sat up with him and watched the sunrise together, I guess. And had a a slushy beer. (laughs) Yeah, it's surreal, it's strange. They sat like that together for hours. I didn't really think of him as being dead. I guess. Again, it was a a surreal experience and I was, you know, sobbing, crying, but um, I don't know, some kind of other mentality or other world with him, you know, it's like I was talking to him, you know, and kind of cussing him a little bit, you know, like, why'd you go and do this kind of thing?
2: Brian figured that eventually search and rescue would show up with a helicopter to recover Bill's body. So he waited. But as the day went on, and the sun began to creep further west, he realized no one was coming. He decided to get Bill off the mountain by himself. Brian
1: is five a 130 pounds. Bill was considerably larger. Carrying the body wasn't an option, so Brian lashed his skis together to create a kind of improvised sled,
5: and he lay Bill on top. At first I tried towing him, and he kind of mowed me down, right? From behind, that, that wasn't working. And I eventually ended up straddling him and riding him like a sled which is even more absurd
2: they rode like this all the way down the face of the mountain to timberline as absurd as it was it was just the kind of thing bill and brian would have laughed about on previous excursions so it felt kind of like a final adventure with them a little bit
5: yeah it was
2: Eventually,
1: Brian made it down to Bar Trail, where he was greeted by a group of fellow climbers and friends from town who'd come up to help. Together, they carried Bill's body back to the Cog Railway and rode with him back
5: down the mountain. I'm so glad everyone else showed up to help, you know, and and get him off the hill. It was a real, it was a bonding thing, for sure.
2: It it strikes me as almost like a, you know, like a fallen soldier or something, like people kind of taking care of their own.
5: Yeah, that's exactly how it felt, you know, and it was... uh, important to us. For Nate Porter, Dan Crossy, Mike Houston,
2: and the mountaineering community in Colorado Springs, the avalanche on Pikes Peak in April 1995 was a wake-up call to the dangers of a mountain that they'd long thought of as their playground. But as Nate, Dan, and Mike recovered from their injuries, their love and respect for the mountain remained with them.
7: definitely made me question why a person does those things and, and the dangers and the risks but the mountains are, are, are sublime as well, and, and I just wanted to get back out there and, and do, the, do the same things I had done, but I was also resolved to do them in a better way.
1: Nate Porter now lives in Salida and runs his own mountaineering store. He's trained in avalanche conditions and survival and still backcountry skis.
7: I love to do it and get out and do it as much as I can, and I, I think about Bill a lot when I do. It... 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 it.
4: Not that I had any answers, but we sure came up, brought up a lot of questions. You know, like, thinking, is it really worth it? And uh, in the long run, you know, to be honest, I think it is. uh, For me, that's why I still do it. Dan Crossy is in his 60s now, and he doesn't ski and climb as hard
2: as he used to, but he still loves to get out into the mountains as often as possible.
4: You know, what we got out of it um, compared with the price we paid, at least the price I paid, still worth it to me and I think Bill would have felt the same way because um, it just it's it forms such great friendships you know it's it's uh, it is exciting keeps you in shape when you're young and beat you up when you're old <laughs> um, but it, it really does make for tremendously good friendships you know that's um, but then when you start thinking about the price that Bill's wife and the kids paid that's uh, kind of makes you think twice Mike Houston
1: thinks a lot about the toll it took on Bill's wife, Deb, and their family.
4: You
6: know, Bill lost his life. His family lost him. It was very, very lucky because one of his best friends wound up falling in love with Deb and married her and helped her raise her kids, and Bill would have really appreciated that a lot, you know. For Mike Houston, there was never a question about returning to the mountains. I'm not particularly religious you know i think maybe the mountains are a bigger part of my uh, spiritual life but uh, you know we were up there we were cold we were suffering but it was beautiful man it was nice it's always nice in the mountains even when you're suffering even with my limited vision laying down and bundled up you know i could that morning was memorable you know the avalanche scar was all around us and there's all these little chunks of snow and it's kind of like this the slate has been wiped you know with this avalanche debris and and it was uh, the sun was on it was just gorgeous morning you know and you're just like great to be alive and in the mountains you know and great regret you know that somebody died
2: Wish We Were Here is a production of KRCC Public Radio in Colorado Springs, Colorado.
1: Music for this episode was composed by Colorado Springs-based musician Brian Elio, aka Mob Dividual. You can check out his music at Bandcamp.com. The historic audio at the beginning of this episode is from the 1950s tourist video, Pikes Peak or Bust. It was produced by the Colorado Springs Chamber of Commerce and came to us courtesy of the Pikes Peak Library District.
2: A special thanks to our interns Abigail Sensky and Amy Ron to KRCC Programming Director Jeff Beery and General Manager Tammy Terwelp.
1: You can hear this episode again and find all the previous episodes of Wish We Were Here online at krcc.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.
2: For Wish We Were Here in KRCC, I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black.